That is the voice of the serial killer nurse, Kimberly Signs. She killed five people and attempted to kill another five. That's the number that is official. But it's suspected that she's killed much more than that. So that's who we're going to be talking about today. So welcome, welcome, welcome everybody to STAT Shocking Traumas and Treatments. And we are your hosts, Karen. And Mary. Coming to you from beautiful Toronto, Ontario, Canada. Well, let's just get right into this. So, as I usually like to do, is start with the killer and learn a little bit, if not as much as I can, about them. The thing is with Kimberly Signs, I wasn't able to do as deep a dive as I wanted to. There wasn't a heck of a lot of information about her childhood. Um, just, you'll, you'll hear. So, yeah. I wish I knew more. Wish I knew more. I looked all over the place, but this is, this is what I've got. She was raised in an unincorporated town of Pollock. The population was made up of blue-collar, hard-working church-going and patriotic Americans. That they preferred their beautiful surroundings and country than that of the big city. And do you blame them? No, not with all the construction we've got going here. I would, <laughs> take some quiet, peace and quiet in nature for sure. Oh, I would take the country anytime. Um, so... Signs was your typical sociopathic narcissist with a history of depression and drug abuse on top of it. When things didn't go her way, everyone around her suffered, including her innocent victims that she took out her most devious frustrations on. Okay, so her father was William Kent Fowler, known as Kent by his by everybody, and he was born on August 24th, 1952 in the unincorporated Redland area of Texas. Now, her mother's name is interesting. <laughs> and maybe I'm... Mary. I want, I'm, Mary's leaning right into me. I can tell she really wants to say the mother's name. Benjamin Francis Thigpen. That is quite the name. I guess Francis instead of Franklin because they wanted to make it feminine. <laughs> Why would you name a daughter Benjamin? Yeah. Yeah. It's odd. So, I mean, it, it must fall back to being very patriotic. Um, but she went around being known as Benny. And she was uh, born on September 8th, 1954 in Pollock. They married when they were 19 and 17 on October 1st, 1971. And then Kimberly Sains, known then as Kimberly Fowler, was born November 3rd, 1973. Her brother Cody Fowler was born three years later to the exact date. Also on November 3rd. That's kind of cool. That's, yeah, that's that's not that common, but... I mean, if you're twins. <laughs> I am a twin. <laughs> yeah. So isn't it funny that you guys were born on the same day? We had somebody say that once. Yeah. <laughs> they asked for ID, and then they were like, Oh. When were you born? Or no, someone asked my sister. They said something like, when was she born? I was like, duh, the same day. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so Kent worked at the Rush Truck Center, and Benny worked at... Lufkin's Walmart and you know they, they really kind of stayed with the jobs that they had they were really well respected the mother worked all her way up to manager and so they weren't um, poor and 
they were, you know, kind of middle class for the area and just really hardworking people, very uh, deeply religious, church going, and they brought their ch children up with God, country, and family, and honest living. Only it didn't seem to rub off on their children. Cody Fowler had his first run-in with the law when he was 17 years old. He had DUIs and driving without the license. On October 18, 1997, Cody married Christine Hayes, and he had three more arrests in jail time between March 4, 1998 and April 15, 2002. So his wife filed for divorce on May do you blame her? His last conviction, and two weeks later, she's like, I'm out. Yeah, maybe uh, Maybe she thought she liked a bad boy, but... Yeah. What do good girls like bad guys? <laughs> I had this question for a really long time. I, I don't know that song. It's plain to see that good girls always fall in love with me. <laughs> I don't know if that was appropriate to do right there, but... See, that's what Mary fell in love with me. Because I'm a bad girl. Bad girls. Talking about bad, sad girls. Okay, this is not a time to sing. So, basically, she was like, I've had enough. He had three more. Yeah, so she had enough. She was like, uh, I'm out. And he had three more arrests between July 2002 and February 2012. So, he really settled down over those 10 years. <laughs> he only had three more arrests. Now, let's talk about Kimberly. She was an apathetic child and teenager, and she'd lose interest in things quickly. Um, she did um, participate in some sports like baseball, and I found this one a little funny because she was in cheerleading for a while. And, you know, rah, rah, go, 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 team. We got spirit. How about you? How about you? <laughs> so I just don't see... An apathetic, morose teenager doing well and cheerleading, but whatever. So she was disinterested in most things. And any student that remembered her, they, they said she was very quiet and appeared depressed and morose, and she really didn't have any friends. In 1990, in her sophomore year, she met Chris Hopper, who is her absolute polar opposite. And they were definitely an odd pair, and it didn't make any sense to anybody. Chris was a senior, very popular, voted most likely to succeed, played baseball and basketball. He was all district in basketball. He was on the Students' Council, Yearbook Committee, member of the National Honor Society, Fellowship of Christian Athletes, and Students for Christ. So he was doing everything. Like, he was involved in everything. Um, and the, you know, not just sports. Like, he had, he was in the National Honor Society. So what did he see in her? I don't know. That's interesting. It's uh, sometimes you can't, you know, sometimes opposites attract, but like that's quite an opposite. Well, I thought about a couple things. We know now that she's a sociopath. We know now, you know, and you'll know more about her character. So I wonder, maybe she was just really good at manipulating this guy. Do you know what I mean? Like whatever she she was just able to somehow insinuate herself into his life and manipulate him because, you know, he was a very religious dude. And maybe he saw her as a quiet, you know, uh, person who just was, you know, on her own, a bit of a loner. And, you know, maybe he noticed her and was like, oh, and then she was able to get you know under his skin in some way. I'm just speculating, but. I, I just, I, mean, I just don't see maybe it. Maybe their families went to church together. I don't know. We don't know. I have no idea, but just maybe wonder. 
So, or maybe because he was that way and her parents were very religious, she was like, okay, I'll just, you know. Yeah, like she could put it on somehow. So, Chris graduated in 1990 and Kimberly became pregnant and dropped out of school. On July 26, 1991, she gave birth to Jacob Hopper. And on September 1991, they married. And most people thought that she got pregnant to trap him. Was that something that was kind of talked about or just sort of like well yeah sort of obvious when it's come up and you know like people that have like been in the town and talked about this and you know people that they went to school with and everything they you know they felt like oh like she trapped this catch because he really was a catch when you think about it you know unless he was like a troll turtle man that was very odd looking not that it should matter i'm just okay i was just a joke so um Believe it or not, their marriage lasted six years until October 1997. So during that time, she went to work at Fleetwood Transportation. On September 9th, 1999, she became deathly ill with pneumonia. Um, And she recovered after aggressive treatment. Apparently, she went to a CCU and she was really, really sick. What's a CCU? Critical care unit. Oh, I was thinking ICU. Do they call it? Do they call it CCU in the states? CCU or ICU? Oh, okay. Same here. Critical care, intensive care. Yeah. So, she claimed that she had a near-death experience, which was possible, and that her life would be smooth sailing from this point on. And she also became very religious for a short period of time. Of course, that's not going to last, because as we all know, she's a sociopath. She started to date her future husband, Kevin Sines, at the same place that they worked, Fleetwood Transportation. And he had quite the criminal history. So I'm just going to go through the things. Uh, theft, possession of drugs with intent to sell. He was sentenced to four years. And then he, he broke his parole a couple times, which is not really a smart thing to do. But that's, a, that's who he was. She married Sines while he was still in prison. And she was six months pregnant with his child. She quit her job for some reason, and uh, he was released on November 14th, 2000. The reason why I say some reason is because he's in jail. She would be the sole, you know, income earner. So, anyway, she gave birth to Madison Grace on December 22nd, 2000. So, things quieted down in, in their little family. There were no more arrests. And... She also, during this time, decided that she wanted to become an LVN, or a licensed vocational nurse. Uh, They're known as RPNs here in Canada, which is a registered practical nurse. And for a registered nurse, it's four years of university. And for the LVNs, it's two years. At least in in the States, it's that. I don't know if that's changed in Canada. So... um, this, her, her, so her parents, they loved their kids. So th- this is like a kind of a strange transaction. I don't understand how it works. So if any of you guys hear this and, you, you know, can drop me a line and explain this. Her parents were finally able to pay off their mortgage, which is a huge deal. I mean, anyone who pays their mortgage off is, you know, it's, it's phenomenal. So they paid off their mortgage and then they sold the home to Kim. For 20 bucks and then a month later she sold it back to them for 20 bucks and then they took out another mortgage so they had it totally paid off and then they took out a mortgage for like twenty six thousand dollars and that was to pay for her going to school 
So I don't know what went on there. Maybe it made a loophole for something. I have no idea. So um, she started her college education at Angelina Community College. And naturally, her parents were very supportive. I mean, they got a second mortgage or a mortgage and very proud of her. And her, her father was quoted as saying, quote, it was about helping people. She just liked to help people, end quote. And her son was very proud of her. He said, quote, I always got to go to school knowing my mom was out there saving lives, end quote. If only they knew. So that was Jacob from her first marriage? Yes. Right. Okay. So Science graduated in December of 2004 and got her first job as an LVN that same month. So the, her first job was at Lufkin Memorial Hospital. And five months later, she was fired. Couldn't find any information on why she was fired, but she was. So your first nursing job, fired five months later. She got a second job. Uh, that uh, was at the Woodland Heights Hospital in Lufkin. Lufkin has two hospitals, so she went from one to another. And she was fired from that job. She only worked there for two months, and she was fired for stealing Demerol and, yeah, and signing it out for patients and taking it herself, which that's, you know, that's a really shitty thing to do. I understand some people are addicts, and their, their intent is not to help, is not to hurt somebody. But when your patient is in pain and they get, they can have, say, 10 milligrams of, of morphine and you take five and only give them five, then their pain's not managed. Or you just sign it out for them when they're not in pain and you take it yourself. Hmm. So um, that's kind of a common thing that happens with uh, hospital workers. So sometimes the patient is, uh, is really harmed by it because they don't have pain control. So could she, I mean, I don't know. I mean, she obviously had some sort of a problem or she was selling it. I'm not sure which. No, she was a drug addict, yeah. Um, so you think her career would be over even before it started, but no. There is a federal law in the U.S. that only allows employers to declare if they would or would not hire uh, the person again. So that you couldn't say why. So what would be is like, basically, would you hire them? No. Would, would you rehire them? No. Would you rehire them? Yes. And that's it. But wait, I mean, if she was, was she convicted of a felon or something? Like, did, or they just like fired her because she stole it, but they didn't pursue charges against her. Um, I believe that they did um, pursue charges against her. I'll get to that in a second. Then wouldn't the licensing board? Well, um, that's what I'm getting okay. to. Um, the Texas State Board of Nursing only releases the allegations against a nurse after the investigation has been completed. So that can take years. So clearly that's what happened here is that someone could go two years um, in, in a period of time when they're investigating it. And she, it would appear that she had a, a, a squeaky clean record. So she, you know, slipped through the cracks. Um, so yes, uh, so the charges against narcotic theft would not be available to future potential employers. And like I said, she had a nice squeaky clean looking record. Even though her resume that she submitted to the uh, to get a new, another job showed that they would not hire her back, they were desperate for nurses, so they overlooked that, thinking, oh, well, it could have been she was late a couple times or, 
she put something on her resume that was inaccurate. I mean, there's, you know, some places are willing to overlook this in order to get the staff. And, you know, I don't think that there's any margin for error when it comes to uh, this kind of stuff in healthcare. And I'm not talking about little things. Um, anyway, her next job was at Wright's Choice Home. Uh, she was fired after two months because she had a miserable attitude and was constantly late or just didn't show up or call in. I can't imagine just not showing up for work, but period. I, I, I can't, it blows my mind. If, if we had a, a, a nurse that didn't show up at, in like in the hospital, we'd be like freaking out. Like, is she okay? What happened? Yeah, Did she... he get into an accident? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And, like, and you know, so especially you, if it's not like them, right? That's the first place you go. And, you know, you call her up. Are you coming in? Uh, no. You know, so I don't know. That's just, I, I can't, you know, maybe if I, if I worked at a job that wasn't, you know, critical to patient care, I could see someone maybe doing that. I don't know. I'm just too much of a, like, uh, I don't know. Responsible person. Yeah, I guess that's the right word. I can be an ass in so many other things, but when it comes to that, absolutely not. Um, so after that, she seemed to have fallen into a deep depression and she was admitted to the psych ward at Brentwood Hospital in Shreveport, Louisiana. I think that's weird. She's in East Texas, but ends up going to a psych ward in Louisiana. Louis, well, Lufkin, I looked at this. I wondered about this too. I looked at it on a map. So Lufkin's right close to the border with Louisiana. So Well, that's what I figured, but I just can't imagine... I'm in Ontario being admitted to Quebec. You know, I don't know. Yeah, I think it's a bit different there because you're, you don't have like socialized health care, but maybe she just didn't want to be, you know. Yeah, because I mean, your health card board, would be different, you know, right? In your, in, like she didn't want to be in somewhere close to home. Right? Uh, maybe and, that was the only place she could go. So, so, uh, so I'm not exactly sure, but yeah, it's right next to Louisiana. Like Lufkin's right on the bumpy part that kind of sticks out a bit. <laughs> Texas. <laughs> wow, you're a map mapper aren't you (laughs) so she was geography genius yeah there you go um she was discharged from the hospital and pretty much as soon as she was discharged she got another job on october 1st 2006 at the lufkin state school and this is a live-in facility for people with learning and developmental disabilities when i hear that it really bothers me because when you hear about um people that are really vulnerable um, and really can't or have a lot of difficulty expressing what is is going on. And you have a psycho like her. I mean, that's just, like I said, it, 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 it immediately when I hear that, I'm like, no. Recipe for, uh, recipe for disaster there. And it's awful. And so she was fired uh, on October 31st, hired October 1st. Fired October 31st. She didn't even make it a month. No, no. And, and the reason... Happy Halloween. The reason yeah. listed was not suited for the job. And like I said, I fear what she might have done. Um, so in less than a year, she had been fired from four jobs and had four no rehires on her resume. Hmm. On November 27th, 2006, she was hired in this one. You can hear it. Children's Clinic of Lufkin. And again, my, my teeth are grinding thinking of it. So we go from people that are vulnerable for having disabilities to children who are vulnerable for, you know, you know, different reasons, but because they have a, they can't communicate what, uh, what's happening. 
So it doesn't seem like anything happened to the children there, uh, thank God. But six months later, she was fired again for missing eight shifts. She didn't show up. She didn't call in. It, it makes my skin crawl. It makes me uncomfortable. What the hell? Anyway, so during that time, things were not going well at home. Kevin Sainz um, seemed to have grown past his criminal ways and, you know, he had become a, he had matured, become a responsible adult. Oh, maybe being a father might have changed that. No, marriage. Sometimes you just don't grow it, right? Yeah, I mean, it could, like, it sounds like it when he was young, maybe he just was around the wrong people. And Isn't you know. it a lot of work to be a criminal? I don't know. I would think it is. Because <laughs> you have to do a hell of a lot not to get caught. Mm-hmm. And you have to do a lot of sneaking to do what you're doing yeah. in the first place. So. It sounds like maybe he just, you know, was caught up with some wrong people and did some drugs and st- stupid shit when you're young. I just and think it sounds... straightened himself out. With, sounds tiring. Yeah. <laughs> having a kid and getting married. It changes people, yeah. right? Um, but she was spiraling... She, she was spiraling out of control. She had lost... So, as you know, she'd lost five jobs. But he got a really great job as an appraiser for the Angelina County Appraisal District. I don't know what he was appraising, but good on him. He got a great job. And he was earning $65,000 a year hmm. in 2006, which is really good money, when, especially when you think about teachers make about thirty grand. Yeah, that's, you know? that's So, money. I mean, that's, that's, that was really good. But it still wasn't enough because Kimberly was deep in debt and she spent the money as fast as it came in. And as you can see, she couldn't hold down a job. So the financial strain in her spending was out of control. So they split up on June 7th, 2007. And uh, that didn't sit well with Kimberly. She had been charged with domestic violence against Kevin. When he left the home to go stay with a family member, she followed him showed up, pounded on the door, demanded he can't come out, and then she assaulted him. So she was arrested with assault causing bodily harm and criminal trespassing. And she spent a night in jail and was let out the next day on bond. And Kevin then got a protective order against her. Hmm. But as things happen, um, often in uh, abusive relationships, unfortunately, they got back together um, in August 2007. Oh. Huh. Well, she reminded me when you were talking about her showing up with Beverly Allen. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so also in August, she got her sixth and last job at Davida Lufkin Dialysis Center. So maybe that was part of it too. You know, there's being manipulative, saying I'm going to change, getting a new job. You know, um, and it sounds like he was a decent guy, you know, um, wanted to, to make it work. So this is where her killing spree began. So Davida is a dialysis center, um, and I think it's important that I talk about dialysis right now because it is relevant to the murders and the uh, attempted murders. So what is dialysis? Why, why would you need dialysis? A person needs dialysis if their kidneys no longer function well enough. Uh, kidney damage is generally progressive over a number of years as a result of long-term conditions such as diabetes, high blood sugar, kidney inflammation, multiple cysts in the kidneys, polycystic kidney disease. A person needs dialysis. A person needs dialysis because their kidneys can no longer remove waste and fluid from the body to keep them healthy. And this usually happens when a person has only 10 to 15 percent of their kidney function left. 
They also um, will have symptoms such as nausea, vomiting, swelling, and fatigue. I mean, they're toxic and they can't get rid of the fluid. So you're, you're toxic and you have edema everywhere. So even if the person doesn't have symptoms yet, they can still have really high level of toxicity in their blood. So maybe if they're not having that, they still are going to need dialysis. So there's two types of dialysis that you can get. Peritoneal dialysis and hemodialysis. And I'm going to talk about the peritoneal dialysis. I think this, I don't know, I think it's kind of cool the way they can do this. So peritoneal dialysis is a way to remove waste products from the blood when the kidneys can't adequately do their job, like I said. This procedure filters the blood in a different way than it does with hemodialysis. So during, I'm just going to call it PD, a cleansing fluid um, flows through a catheter into the peritoneal cavity. Now, I didn't, I didn't really realize this. Uh, the peritoneum acts as a filter and removes waste products from your blood. So I, I really didn't know that it did that on top of, you know, other things. So after a set period of time, the fluid is then uh, filtered through. It sort of cleanses, removes the waste products, and it flows back out of the catheter and is discarded. So these treatments are, are more convenient in a sense because you can do them at home and while you're traveling, so it doesn't really restrict you that much. But it's not for everybody because you have to be able to competently do it yourself or have a loved one or a tra trained staff to be able to, to manage the, the care needed for that. So that was a really simple description of peritoneal dialysis. Now we're on to hemodialysis, which is way more common. And it's done where the actual blood itself is removed from the body. It goes through a dialyzer. It is filtered. Extra fluid is removed. And then it goes back into the body. And they do that um, from different types of accesses. So the first one is a fistula. And what they do is they join an artery and a vein together in the arm. Because you need to have like a large um, vein artery, not not a little IV one. Because, you know, you think about the, your, all of their blood is being removed and put back in. So you can't have a little, little tube. Um, or a graft. And this is made by using a piece of catheter. So, you know, a little soft tube that joins the artery and vein together. So one, it's direct, and the other, it's it's joined with a with a tube. And then there's a, a catheter, which is usually placed in a large vessel in the neck. So it's just directly in, and uh, it's used that way. So if the access is a fistula or a graph, the nurse or technician will place two needles into the port area of the the catheter. And they do that at the beginning of each treatment. And these needles are connected to the catheter lines into the machine. So one brings the blood in and the other returns it to their body clean. So or cleansed. So that's basically how dialysis works in a nutshell. Quick and dirty. It's amazing when you think about it that we're able to have this technology to help people with end-stage um, kidney failure to be able to prolong their lives. You know, some people who just maybe have some sort of kidney disease and they're waiting for a transplant, it's amazing uh, that we can do this. Yeah, and some people can live, 
you know, a year. And there's one patient here, she, she was her eighth year in dialysis. So, you know, it depends on the person underlying uh, disorders. And yeah, if they're on a waiting list, it may be keep them alive long enough to, to get a kidney transplant plant. All right. So DaVita Dialysis Center, I want to talk about them a little bit um, just before I get into some of the victims. I already mentioned that it's a huge company at the time it had 1300 locations. You're saying it has 2000 now. And I already said that she was hired at the Lufkin location. I just wanted to sort of recap. Um, when you first go into Vita, it gives you a sense of, or, you know, this in particular location gave a sense and appearance of being really clean and sterile. And, one of the most predominant smells is bleach because that's pretty much what they use to, to clean everything. So they would clean the areas before and after treatments. Uh, any of the, the surfaces, floors, walls, whatever needed to be cleaned. And there was two, they would use two uh, uh, concentrations of it. They would have, they would put a bucket of one concentration in a second bucket of another more strong concentration in the area. And they would use it depending on what its use was for. Some was directly for blood. Uh, others were it just, you know, basic cleaning. And again, th this is going to be really relevant to, to uh, the future here of what happened. Um, so DeVita ran a bleach solution through all the dialysis machines once a week on Thursdays. And it's, you know, a really serious thing because it's got to be done absolutely perfect. They have to have like the perfect concentration. It has to make sure that it's run through and then there's no trace of, of bleach left into the, in the um, machines. Just so you can get a bit of an, uh, an idea of the setup there, there were two bays for patients and it was sort of like a semicircle where they would like a horseshoe where they would face each other and then in between that there would be a nurse's station and at the nurse's station they had monitors uh and things like that to monitor the machines the patients that kind of stuff um and the patients would need to be get their vital signs every 30 minutes because you know i think you know it's pretty obvious because you have your blood leaving and coming back so if if the speed of a, of that that's happening could cause you know a rise or a drop in your blood pressure and, and things like that so they're they're monitored really closely well and your kidneys you know are critical to your heart's functioning of course so that would be very important as well too so you know like i said you're you're basically taking all the blood out of the body and cleaning it and putting it back in and that has to be done in, in a very strict protocol I would think otherwise something bad could happen well yeah because there's a risk of clots as well and sometimes they have to use a bit of heparin just to make sure because you know there's there could be a little bit of a kink or a narrowing in a in, in one of the tubes and you know one of the lines and you know that may be a spot where a clot could happen and stuff like that so they're monitoring for all those different types of things so most treatments take about three to four hours because like we said the entire body's blood volume is uh, removed, cleansed, and, and brought back into their body. Um, and because they were nor like the, it, it usually like the average type of a dialysis patient would go three times a week for three, four hours a day. So, and generally people are scheduled around the same time. So you would get to know 
the other people that were getting treatments. You would be spending a lot of time with each other. You know, some people like to knit or watch TV or read and, and others want that chair exactly. So, you know, it, it's that, that human aspect to what's going on. And again, this will be relevant in the future because everybody knows everybody and they know exactly how these treatments work. So let's talk about the the first person who died here. I always like to get into it because there is a face to these these murders, not just the first murder or the second murder. It's important. Um, so Miss Clara Strange, she was well-liked. Uh, everybody thought she was, was sweet. She was easygoing. Because if you can imagine, some dialysis patients can be pretty cranky because I would definitely be miserable if I had to go in there three, four days a week, um, for three, four hours at a time. And by the time you're going in, you're feeling really crappy, right? Cause I mean, you're starting to get toxic. Yeah. I can imagine that would be, um, you know, not a burden, but it, you know, like you said, it's, it's something you have to do, but I guess they get used to it. And well, know, I mean, some people do, them. some people don't. I mean, it's, it's, it's a terrible situation to be in. Right. So uh, this 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 lady was lovely. Everybody, you know, lo loved working her. She with her, she just really stood out for that. She was born November 6, 1930 in Pollock, Texas. She grew up in the country and uh, got married and she worked her whole life at the at the same place, which I think is amazing. Um and uh she had a couple of kids and unfortunately tragically one of her daughters died and she raised her grandchildren so you can see she was a real family person and it's not easy to raise young children when you're getting to be granny age like like me um as she got another hint of van yeah <laughs> as she got older her health started to fail and she required dialysis on tuesday morning april 1st at 11:34 she was hooked up to the dialysis machine and began treatment. Now, some of the people, just to get an understanding of the staff that worked there, so you'd have uh, your nephrologist, doctor, who would be in charge of the whole place. Um, he would be, you know, the administrator. Then you have uh, a couple of registered nurses, but one of those nurses in particular would also be, you know, administrator, administrator from the, the nursing level. Then you would have LVNs, and PCTs. LVNs we know are the uh, licensed vocational nurses and the PCTs were um, like uh, like technicians. They would um, sometimes run that dialysis. They were trained to know how to set up, monitor, uh, do the dialysis, clean afterwards, that kind of stuff. So they were sort of the I don't want to say lower end of the totem pole because everybody's friggin' important uh, in healthcare, but uh, as far as education and stuff like that, but uh, still, you know. So they were like a technician specifically for dialysis. Yeah, yeah. Um, so a, a PCT technician by the name of Whirlin Guillory um, noticed that initially she had some shortness of breath. Again, that's not going to that's not that uncommon when you're you're now retaining a lot of fluid and you know you've got a lot of toxins in you. But once the treatment started, she started to feel better, which made sense as well. The doctor ordered her blood flow to be set at 400 cc's a minute. And it's critical that that is followed to the T and monitored closely. So Guillory went on a break. And when he returned, Mrs. Strange was unconscious and her vital signs were absent. And her blood, her blood flow rate had been lowered to 300 cc's a minute. Okay. 
this blood flow rate may change in small increments. So the doctor may be monitoring the patient and say, okay, let's go to 390, but not 400 to 300. That's just insane. So he called for help. And even though, I mean, this isn't an, doesn't have, you know, emergency services, it is set up to perform or to be able to assist uh, in an emergency situation for basic resuscitation, et cetera. Um, so Guillory said during that time, he, quote, said, Kim, what is going on? But she didn't seem to care. She was just sort of standing there looking around. So the doctors and the nurses did the best that they could to save her, uh, Mrs. Strange, but unfortunately she died uh, right in the dialysis chair. They couldn't bring her back. Now that's fairly uncommon, I would think. You don't generally have deaths in a dialysis unit. No, it's it's incredibly rare. Um, but minutes, minutes after this, minutes after she died, another patient went into a cardiac arrest, and this is Miss Thelma Metcalf. Um and she was another really well-liked patient. Uh, she had grown up in a small town close to Lufkin. She married Walter Metcalf, and they moved to a remote forested area in East Texas. I am jealous. Uh, she had four children, and she was a loving mother, church-going, and, and well-loved, like I said. In 2007, she began to deteriorate, and her kidneys were failing. She started dialysis at Lufkin on August 2007. So at 3.05 in the afternoon, Miss Metcalf went into cardiac arrest. Now remember, the other lady was hooked up at uh, 11, um, I think 11.45. What did I, I'm just going to go back in my notes. She was hooked up at 11.34 in the morning. So four hours later, she goes into arrest. And now minutes after her, Mrs. Strange, uh, sorry, Mrs. Metcalf goes into arrest. Yeah, that's... Yeah. Pretty suspicious. Um, so the staff really didn't have any time to recover from the shock of Miss Strange. So they, they whip over to Miss uh, Metcalf's uh, bedside or uh, dialysis area and started CPR in her. Again, um, it was stated that Sains acted very strangely. She was given an ambu bag to, ascent, uh, to assist with uh, in ventilation. If, if you don't know what that is, it's a, it looks like a, a big squishy bag <laughs> it's plastic it's like a lung action act action yeah. and then there's a a mask that goes over your face and seals around your nose and mouth and so you can ventilate the patient manually so she was handed this this ambu bag and she just stood there with it and like, what are you doing put it on her face so uh, guillory put it on the patient's face and when they were doing cpr they noticed that her chest wasn't rising and falling with respirations because she wasn't squeezing the damn ambu bag to ventilate her she was just friggin standing there That's but that is not okay the patient like she freezes you know can someone freeze but i don't know that's not what was happening here she just didn't give a shit and um so someone took it from her another pct and started um ventilating um miss metcalf uh ambulance arrived uh, rushed to the hospital, but unfortunately she died in the ER. Oh, also, when they looked at her machine, her blood was running at, the flow was at 300 cc's a minute. It was decreased to 200 cc's a minute. And who would have done that? <clears throat> yeah. 
So it's important to know that these dialysis machines are very sensitive and an alarm goes off when there's any changes or disruptions in treatment. So if there's a, a you know, a bubble or a, a clot or anything like, uh, you know, a kink, you know, anything that would just, um, disrupt, mean that, like yeah, disrupt the flow yeah, or... exactly. The, a, a machine goes off. And, um, so like I said, it's very, very sensitive. So, when so why didn't the alarms go off? Well, you would have to disarm the alarms to reduce the flow and then disarm the alarm afterwards. Because if you think about an IV pump, if you've ever had an IV. Oh, yeah. And, you know, and then they go off. Beep, beep, beep. Yeah, beep, 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 beep. There's usually like a kink in the line. But when you're changing the bag, it'll like beep, beep, you know. What will you put it in? And then when you close it and restart it, there is more beep sounds. It's, you know, it's an auditory um, guide. So we know, you know, what's happening, but nothing went off. No indication, no beeps, nothing went off. So the only way that can happen, especially to two machines, is that someone manually turned those off. Um, the nephrologist, Dr. Imran Nazir, who is... Um, said that in his 23 years, sorry, he was the, the nephrologist that worked there. He said in his 23 years as a doctor, he had never seen a person die of a heart attack while getting dialysis. And now he had two. Was two he... in, uh, within like five, 10 minutes of each other. So Davida acted quickly and they launched an investigation to get to the bottom of uh, what happened to these two women. So just to note that Davida Lufkin did not have a good track record. It had many health inspection infractions and uh, more than once. Uh, what they did is they brought in an independent company to assess the inadequacies. The facility administrator at the time was Sandy Lawrence. But as of April 2nd, 2008, Amy Clinton, RN, took over to help investigate. So some of the infractions in the past and also found in this time, they were not purifying the dialyzers properly think about it your blood is running through this thing but they're not being like purified properly they weren't following doctor's orders and there was not enough properly trained staff so can you imagine someone running this but they're not well trained to do it um they only had a, a part-time biomedical technician they also known as biomed and he would split his time between lufkin and Livingston, which is about 70 miles away. So he was the only one that knew how to mix uh, the, the, the water and, um, you know, the, the chemicals needed to run these machines properly. And that was that's part of what the cleansing part of, uh, of the process. So you need a full-time one. So if you're over 70 miles away and something's going on or they run out of uh, fluid on the other end, you, you, you know... You can't just wait for an hour or a bit for the guy to come back. So that was bad. They needed a full-time person. Um, also, too, before Signs was um, hired, they had a higher death rate than anywhere else. Okay? So from January 1st to December 31st, 2007, 27 patients died, which was a 7.1% uh, higher than the state average. Now, taking this into consideration, patients are unwell. I mean, you're not getting dialysis because you're doing great. I mean, you have a lot of underlying problems, you know, diabetes, 
the heart, you know, we went through that. Yeah, we went through that, that list. So death is not uncommon in a person whose kidneys have failed. Um, But for some reason, theirs was higher than other places. And it may be attributed to the fact that the clinic wasn't running properly. So just to clarify, these people were dying. They were patients and didn't necessarily die at the clinic, but they died. They were receiving treatment there and then died. Might have had to go to the hospital from there or had died after a treatment or before a treatment. Yeah. Right. But, so but their death rate was, was definitely higher. Okay. But so it's hard to assess why right. when these are already more. critically ill. Oh. Well, I don't know if they're critically ill, but very ill patients. Yeah, comorbidity. Exactly. So, so that's they where could have maybe if the machine wasn't cleansed properly, it could have gotten an infection or it could have been whatever. So yeah. they get their treatment, they go home, they throw up a pulmonary embolism and it, it could whatever. be any reason. So as you heard, things weren't running well there. So any one of those things could lead to uh, major problems, but it's hard to track because of them being sick to begin with. So that's where we're going to stop today. Okay. I want to, we're going to next episode talk about the other deaths and injuries, or attempted murders, and want to talk a bit about the actual court case. I used to get into court cases more before because I find them phenomenally interesting. So I'm like that kid where you say, how was your day? And I'm like, well, I walked down the street and my shoelace came undone. Then I did it back up. And then I just checked the other one just in case. And then I saw a rock and I, you know, I will go like that through a, through um, a court case and you'll be phenomenally bored by me. But this one in particular has to stand out to be, um, for me to, to, to talk about it. So it was basically, uh, yeah, it's interesting. I'm going to leave it like that. Um, so that's what the next episode is going to be about. And uh, that's it for today. And I want to thank you all for listening. Um, yeah, this episode was a little bit late. I apologize for that. There were some technical difficulties. Uh, even today, we're recording through one mic because um, my interface decided to be a dick today. Mm-hmm. And, and so not. we're cozied up next to each other. Yeah, she's sitting close to me. But you know what? My back was starting to hurt. So she was massaging my back. Like, could anyone be luckier than that? <laughs> you should become a massage therapist or something. Yeah, yeah. Maybe. That'd be a career choice. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um. So thank you for listening, everybody. And I want to give a big shout out. Thank you to new Patreon supporters. This is incredible. To Gillian Rydell. Lisa Carpenter, Lisa Day, and Jennifer Ochel. Thank you guys so much for thank you. Yeah. Uh, supporting us on Patreon. Thank you to all the Patreon supporters. If you guys are interested in, in um, uh, supporting us on a monetary level as well, please go out and check out uh, the Patreon stat shocking traumas and treatments. And there are some really good perks that you get with it. And eh, maybe just cruise by and check it out. Also, too, thank you to everybody that gives iTunes reviews. And if you haven't yet and you you feel up to it, if you don't mind dropping me a line or dropping us a line, dropping us a review, that would be great. And um, and also the Facebook page, best Facebook page in the land. I mean, group in the land. You got to go check everybody out there. So best, best group of people that 
in in the land. And special thanks to Lorraine. Hopefully she's healing up well. Lorraine! Yes. Everybody send vibes to Lorraine. She um, is basically ready to run a marathon. She's got a bionic hip now. That's right. (laughs) Okay, so thank you guys. And remember to take care of yourself. Take care of one another. And most importantly, love yourself. Peace. One love. True crime and it gets none realer. Sometimes it'll be the cure that'll kill you. Gotta watch out, yeah, you gotta watch your back. Cause you don't wanna be another episode on stat. Thank you for tuning in, learn a thing or two. These medical mysteries can be unbelievable, yeah. Subscribe, make sure you do that so you'll be tuned in and be ready for the next show. Stack.